You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that when Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and life to the full, that that is a deeply and profound experience for us. That you will be transforming us into a people who when others look at us, they go, there's something different about them. It's that they have abundant life. They have rest. They have intimacy with God. So God, I pray this morning that you would reveal any roadblocks to that. That you would fuel us to the brim with your presence. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said in one big, loud voice. All right. Well, friends, as Sarah said, we've been working our way through this series on rest, on living a grace-paced life in a culture of burnout. And so week one, we took a look at God as creator and how knowing God releases us to rest and knowing ourselves releases us also. And in week two, we looked at the Sabbath this profoundly Christian idea of taking one day, 24 hours to rest and be with God. But sometimes what happens is that we have these big pillars in the Christian life and we end up with a a faith that looks like fasting and feasting. That on these big moments, on Sunday or on Sabbath, we feast with the intimacy with God. We, we, We draw near to Him and the rest of the week, we just survive on the fumes. But I don't actually think that's what faith looks like. I don't think that's what a grace-paced life looks like. It looks like eating all the time. You've got to fuel up. And so I might not have mentioned it before, but I'm a cyclist. You might only know that because every single time I get up here, I have a cycling analogy. (laughs) Now, I was talking with someone the other day, and they they were intrigued as how you keep cycling for a really long distance. So... Just, just imagine you're going for a five-hour bike ride. How do, you, how do you keep going? Well, the answer is that you have to keep eating all the time, constantly. So c- can I just please have a volunteer? Maybe I'll just draw a hat out of the name like Mark Zachary. Would you like to come to the front? Yeah. It's great. When you call out people by name in front of a crowd, they have to do what you're doing. All right, Mark. So you're about to go on a five-hour bike ride. So first things first, you need to put on... Your cycling jersey. So can you check that on for me? All right, now, now Mark, to complete your five-hour ride, you need to eat 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour and you need to drink a half a litre of water. So first things first, turn around. I've got some bananas for you. So we've got to check those. Turn, turn around. So we're going to chuck some bananas in there. All right. <laughs> second thing, second thing, uh, you're going to need to eat six muesli bars. All right. So each one of these is 15 grams. So four of those will get, get you done. Okay. And then, um, well, you need some gels. These are, these are special magic sugar gels. And so you need some of those. But you don't have any water. So I think you actually need some Coke as well, Mark. So wait, let's chuck some of these in your pocket. All right. But you actually haven't got any water yet, Mark. So now you've got to carry some water. So now you're a self-sufficient cyclist ready to be fueled for your five-hour journey. How how do you feel? Heavy. (laughs) Uh, you You can take a seat, Mark. Thank you for being part of this visual representation. Right? You need a lot of fuel. 
just for a five-hour bike ride. Thank you, mate. For your own convenience, Mark, I did wash that before I gave it to you. <laughs> and so you might go, that's a sure a lot of food to be eating. But you only have to learn a lesson once what happens when you don't fuel up. There's a thing that happens to every cyclist at least once, and it's called bonking. I told you, no one came up with cool terms for cycling, right? Bonking is what happens when your body literally runs out of energy to fuel it. It does not matter whether you're 50 k's from home or 5 kilometers from home, your body won't work anymore. You will go from riding at a, a nice, comfortable speed to being completely stopped. Done. This is not about, about going too hard for too long. You just haven't fueled yourself. It's happened to me. It happened to me at uh, this McDonald's uh, about a year, two years ago. And in five minutes, to make sure I got home, I ate two. Cycling. If that's what you're right, that's that's my thing. I'm going to take up cycling now. If five hours of exercise fatigues our body to the point where it constantly needs fuel, how much more does a Christian life need fueling? Life is hard and it's difficult, and so we not only need to live from pillar to pillar, from feast to feast, but every single day we need to draw near to God and feast and eat upon his grace. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what, how do Christians refuel? What are the things that day by day, week by week, that we can participate in to make sure that we are full of the grace of God? So we're going to look at the book of John. So let's, let's just go into John 9 for some context, because I think that's, that's going to be helpful. Otherwise, it's sort of like entering the Marvel Universe at Endgame, right? You're going to enjoy it, but it's not going to make a lot of sense. It's going to, it's going to be way more enjoyable if you start at the beginning. Okay, so this story in John 10 actually has its beginning in John 9. And so there's this super cool story about a blind man. Uh, so this man is blind and the disciples and Jesus come along to the blind man and what happens is the disciples go, well, what happened to make this man blind? Was it because his sin? Was it his father's sin? Was it his mother's sin? And Jesus says, well, actually, it's none of those. This man is blind so that the glory of God may be revealed, that, that the might and power of God might be shown. So Jesus has compassion among the man. He spits into the dirt, makes this paste in the ground, and then puts it on the guy's eye, and suddenly he can see. Now, I don't advise doing this at home. Um, one day, my brother had conjunctivitis and told me he couldn't see, and I said, well, Jesus taught me how to fix that. Right? Yeah, don't try that at home. It does not work as effectively for me as it does for Jesus. Anyway, this, the Pharisees start getting upset. And why are they upset? Because Jesus is doing this miracle on the Sabbath. Da, da, da. Okay? So they start accusing Jesus of using power from Satan because no man of God would, you, would heal anyone or do anything on the Sabbath. So what they do is that they investigate Jesus and they can't find Jesus, so they investigate the man. And so they ask the man, and he, he doesn't have the answers for them. And then they ask his family, and the family says, well, you should go ask the man again. And the man comes, and he has one of my all-time favorite zingers in the Bible, 
Where is it? He says, why do you want to know this? Do you want to worship Jesus as well? Well, no, they want to kill him. So what is their response to the blind man who can now see, who's encouraging the Pharisees to worship Jesus? They throw him out of the temple. They cast him out of the presence of God. Jesus hears about this and finds the man and has this conversation about eternal life with him and the Pharisees find them and we pick it up in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked Jesus, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So there's this, so John 10, the context is there's these Pharisees who are upset with Jesus because he's healed someone on the Sabbath. He's brought life to someone on the Sabbath. Okay, so we, we pick it up again in John 10. So let me read the first two verses. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. So I'm just going to make a, a, a base assumption that most of us aren't very familiar with ancient Eastern farming practices, right? I don't know, maybe you've had a weird life, that's okay. So, so what would have happened is that back then, not just one family, but a number of families, maybe seven families would have gotten all their sheep, all their flock, and put them in one gigantic pen, and they would have paid a gatekeeper. Someone who has stood at the gate because they, they want to make sure that they're protected by the night, that no one comes in. So the only person who's going to come into the family sheep pen, who is, is, they're going to either enter by the gate because they know the sheep, because the gatekeeper knows them, or they're going to come in over the fence to steal and destroy. So Jesus is actually making a very pointed remark. Because who is the thief and the robbers who have come to kill and destroy? It's the Pharisees. It's the people who are casting people out of the presence of God. People who are casting people out of the temple. And who are the sheep? Well, God is calling a people for himself. The people who know who he is. And so we read on in verses 3 to 6. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. There's this incredible thing that I learned. That sheep are trained to hear the shepherd's voice. You can look on YouTube actually find these demonstrations where there'll be a, a paddock full of sheep and there'll be a bunch of people trying to call out to the sheep, trying to bring the sheep near, but as soon as the shepherd starts calling the sheep, they stop what they're doing, they stop feeding on the pasture and they run towards the shepherd. Why? Because they know the shepherd's voice. So what would happen is, so there's seven flocks of sheep all in this pen and the, 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 the shepherds would stand at different spots and start making this special call that only their sheep know, and the sheep would disperse to their shepherd because they know the shepherd's voice. And Jesus is saying is the same thing is happening with us, except it's even more special because the sheep know the shepherd's voice, but Jesus calls each one of us out by name. There's an intimacy in what Jesus is saying. I don't just, you just don't just hear my voice, I know your name. 
There's a special relationship, a two-way relationship that's going on here. The sheep know the shepherd's voice and the shepherd knows his sheep. And Jesus knows his sheep and the sheep know him. But further than that, it says when he has brought all of his own outside the gate, he goes ahead of them. In ancient Eastern practice, there was a very different way of herding. See, when I think of sheep herding, I think of dogs. And the shepherd sort of runs behind them and gives instructions to the dogs to make sure the sheep go the right way. But um, back then, it's very different. The shepherd goes first. The shepherd actually leads his sheep and they follow him because he keeps communicating to them. I'm going first. You're going to follow me. It has this beautiful image of a master and his disciples. I'm going first. You follow behind. We're going to make this together. And what happens? Well, Jesus gave them this figure of speech, verse 6, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Why don't they understand? Because they're not his sheep. They don't recognize the shepherd's voice. Verse 7, Jesus says again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. For a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. What's Jesus saying? He starts changing the metaphor. I'm not just the shepherd. I'm the gate. I'm the one you have to enter through. It's another way of saying I'm the way, the life, and the truth. Anyone who wants to have access to God needs to come through me. Right? There's only one way to God. There's only one way to have intimacy with God. It's through Jesus. So what Jesus is doing is he's blasting all these false prophets, false leaders, false Pharisees who are saying, this is the way to eternal life. This is the way to abundant life. Jesus says, no, 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 it's through me and me alone. There's only one way to have abundant life. There is only one way to have a filled life. There is only one way to have intimacy with God, and it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. And the question that should be reverberating in our minds is, do we know him? Because if Jesus and Jesus alone offers abundant life, then we will not find it elsewhere. And knowing Jesus has to be the core question for us. Do we know him? I love the phrase, I have come so that they may have life and life in abundance. Life to the full, life to the brim. Sometimes, some of us are going to hear that and come up with two completely different thought bubbles in our mind. Right? Because our, our idea of what God's abundance means is going to be very different. Some of us are going to hear that and think massages and mimosas and nice houses and treat yourself. That's what a life in abundance means. And some of that may be true, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's offering something deeper than mere physical pleasures, something than more just possessions. But I think some of us are going to hear that and go, I'm not actually quite sure, Jesus. I've been following you for a little while now, and it doesn't quite seem like this is life to the full. Some of us have this image in our mind of following Jesus where it's just going to be hard and difficult and then we die and get to be with Jesus and that's where it's going to be awesome. And I, I, I get it. Right? I've, we've had some hard times at this church. 
And there's only one problem with that thought, is that when Jesus says, I've come so that they may have life and life to the full, he actually means it. He's not lying. He's not, he's not playing this card game where he presents something and says, oh, no, gotcha. When Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and life to the full, he actually means it. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we have access to this life to the full? Well, it's only through Jesus. He's the gate. He's the shepherd. Do we hear the shepherd's voice? I think when it comes to refueling for the Christian life, it comes down to intimacy with Jesus. How clearly are we hearing his voice? How close are we with the Lord? Because I think regardless of how difficult our walk has been, the thing that we have to believe and instruct and encourage each other to say is that Jesus is going that way, that's where abundant life is. Abundant life follows him. So I'm going to be where Jesus is, regardless of how we feel or think. And so... What we're going to look at for the rest of our time this morning is what does it look like to be close with God? What does it look like to grow intimacy with the Savior? What does it look like to hear the shepherd's voice? How do we refuel on the grace of God? And there's a beautiful thing here because we've been talking about rest and this seems like a lot of doing, right? Is that our refueling efforts are not fueled by our spirit, our energy alone. We start out in grace, we continue in grace, and we end in grace. God doesn't save us because of ourselves. He saves us through his spirit for his glory. How do we keep living the Christian life? We just talked about the gifts of the spirit. It's we're filled with the spirit. How do we see through to the end? Well, God has said, I will finish what I started in you. It's by grace, started in grace, and will finish in grace. So when we hear these refueling strategies, don't think, I've got a lot to do. Think, what can God do in me? Because I think God wants us to have abundant life, a filled life. So I've got four different refueling stations for the Christian life that I think are helpful means that allow us to draw near to God and to hear the voice of the shepherd that leads to abundant life. Here's the first. It's called the means of grace. You might have heard of the story of Zacchaeus before. And the only way, reason that I know about Zacchaeus was that he was a midget. Right? That's how I remember. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay? And so we, we, we hear about him in the Gospel of Luke. And so if we get that on the screen, this is what it says. He entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't see him. He was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. That's a politically correct way of saying midget. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. So what's going on? Zacchaeus is a small guy. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to draw near to Jesus. And the crowd is following Jesus. And so Zacchaeus can't see. So what is Zacchaeus going to do? Zacchaeus comes up with a plan. I'm going to go where Jesus is heading. So he climbs up the sycamore tree because he knows that's where Jesus is going and he calls out to him and Jesus sees him. I just had this vivid mental picture in my brain of Zacchaeus seeing Jesus and Jesus seeing Zacchaeus and this just smile comes over both. This is what refueling looks like. 
It's not just hard-pressed, hard work. It's positioning ourselves where we know grace is already going. It's going where we know Jesus already has promised to be. And none of these are going to be surprises to us. It's God's word, his prayer, his church. The fact that we have a Bible is wild. It is insane. Right? We know the God who created the stars and the seas and the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the valleys and Australia and Africa and all the continents and he created the seals and the emus and the elephants and what we're saying is that he has written to us so that we may know him. But this is, this is wild. We, we, have this, we have this book in our bookshelf of the God who created everything. It's It's wild. Bart Ehrman is a, an atheist, but a New Testament scholar. And every year he teaches a New Testament introduction class at his university. And um, you know, it's roughly non-Christians, Christians, a whole bunch of everyone. And he, he goes up um, at the start of the year and he says, look, um, how many of you believe that this book is the unchanged eternal word of God? About you know, 60, 70% put their hand up. He goes, that sounds great. How many of you have read Harry Potter? 80, 90%. He says, okay, so how many of you read this book, cover to cover? About 10%. I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm just saying that if Jesus is actually correct when he says that man is not meant to live on bread but on the very word of God, this is where grace is. How are we going to hear the voice of the shepherd if his word is shut to us? I think the more and more and more that we can jump into the scriptures and immerse ourselves here, we're going to be more able to hear the voice of the shepherd in our lives. So friend, let me, let me encourage you. Open up your Bibles. Make sure that you know these words. The God of all creation has written a book specifically so that you can read it and be encouraged and filled with abundant life. And what about prayer? What a wild thought that the same God who created everything that ever was and is and will be and has also written a book so that we could know him wants us to communicate with him. We don't believe in a distant God. We don't believe in a faraway God. We don't believe in a God who doesn't desire communication with us. We believe in a God who wants us nice and close, who wants a two-way relationship where we know him and he knows us. That's why John Piper says these words. Prayer is not only the measure of our hearts, revealing what we really desire, it is also the indispensable remedy for our hearts when we do not desire God the way we ought. I would add to that, prayer is the indispensable remedy for when we feel burdened and broken and tired. Because in prayer, we humble ourselves and say, God, I can't do this, can you help? Can you draw me close to you? I'm trying really hard, but I'm tired. Can you, can you bring me close to you? And the third means of grace, if reading, getting into God's word and having God's ear is important, I think just as important is the church. The church gets a bad rap. I get it. I have been a Christian since I was 13 years old. I'm approaching 29, so I don't know how much that is. That's 16 years of being a Christian. I've seen it all. I've been in ministry, I know all the pains and the hurts that come from being a part of a church, but I also know this, if the church did not exist, I would not be a Christian. 
And I, I mean that sincerely. I don't mean that if the church didn't exist that I wouldn't have heard of the gospel of Jesus. I mean, if the church didn't exist, I would not have remained a Christian. The church has been a constant encouragement and instruction, occasional rebuking. It has been God's chosen instrument of making me more like Jesus. I, I remember a really... There's, there's a number of times. We don't have enough time. I remember a really poignant moment in my, in my Christian faith, and it was the week that Sarah got cancer. And I was preaching, and I, 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 to be honest with you, I did not want to be at church. I wanted to be at home, underneath my sheets, pretending that life didn't exist. And Sarah was in hospital, and she was taken care of, and I was like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to preach. And I remember I, I couldn't sing. I'm like, I, I, I don't know what I'm singing. And I remember sitting here with the church singing and it was like they were singing to me to remind me who God was. That's what the church is. It's a constant reminder of who God is to each other. We don't just sing so that God will be glorified. We sing to remind each other because we forget. We get tired. We find it hard to hear the voice of the shepherd. Where else do you come to hear the scriptures read and explained and encouraged, where we get to sing songs about God that remind us of who God is, where we get to be with fellow Christians, where we work it out? I know, without a doubt, the church does not exist. I'm not a Christian. There's this great quote that I've come back to again and again by a guy, David Mathis. It's a long one, but it's a good one. He says this about the church. It's a shame the word fellowship has fallen on hard times in some circles and is dying the death of domestication and triviality. It is an electric reality in the New Testament, an indispensable ingredient in the Christian faith and one of God's chief means of grace in our lives. The koinea, the Greek for commonality, the partnership, the fellowship, the church that the first Christians shared wasn't anchored in a common love for pizza, soft drink, and a nice clean evening of fun amongst the fellow churchified. Its essence was in their common Christ and their common life or death mission together in his summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. Next slide. Rightly did Tolkien call his nine the fellowship of the ring. This is no chummy hobnob with apps and drinks and a game on the tube. It's an all-in, life-or-death collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opposition. The fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like players on the field in blood, sweat and tears, huddled in the backfield, ready in preparation for the next down. That's the church. It's not just a place for us to come and, I don't know, be gently encouraged, it's the place we come to be restored. It's the place we come after a week fighting a great evil together to be filled by the God of all comfort. Something I've noticed in my 16 years as a Christian is that those who've walked away from the faith first have walked away from the church. And those who have kept in the faith have grown in appreciation for the church. I'm not saying that church isn't hard or church isn't difficult. I'm just saying it's vital. If you're going to be a Christian who experiences abundant life, the church is a vital ingredient. It is not either or. It is all in. 
So we have the means of grace, the word and prayer and the church. Here's a slightly different one, silence. There's this incredible story in the book of 1 Kings. It's a great reason to read your Old Testament because some of the stories in there are just wild. So this is found in 1 Kings 18.19. And here we find the prophet Elijah. Now Elijah is a gospel beast. He's a, a man after God's own heart. He loves the Lord. And the situation that he's facing is that the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation, has rejected God. They've started worshipping Baal. So they've, 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 God has made a people for himself and suddenly they start worshipping someone else. Imagine if you walked into church this morning and we say, well, last week we talked about Jesus, this week we're all about Buddha. It's making life all about Buddha. Like, that would be weird and strange and disconnected, right? And we hope that there'd be some godly men and women who say, wait a second, right? Jesus is really, really important here, but that's what Elijah is doing. And so what it actually says in the text is that there are 450 different prophets of Baal and Elijah is the last remaining faithful prophet. So what they do is, it's a problem because Elijah is a powerful man, a gifted speaker, and so they have this showdown on a mountain. And what they decide to do is that we're going to make two sacrifices. They're going to be a bull on an altar. And um, what, what we're going to do is we're both going to call, call on our gods to consume the sacrifice by taking the sacrifice and Whichever one does it first, that's going to be the God we worship. Okay? So they do whatever the Old Testament version of paper, scissors, rock is, and the prophets of Baal go first. So they, they start dancing around the altar. They start making cuts on their body. They start shouting and shouting and running around and chanting and doing all these rituals. And it's hours and hours and hours and nothing happens. And in fact, Elijah has this, he starts mocking them. So you, you can read it. It says, at noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. In some translation, it says, maybe, uh, maybe Baal is in Elijah starts... Elijah starts calling upon God and pick it up in verse 36. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What happens next? Then Yahweh... The Lord God's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, Yahweh, he's God. Yahweh, he's God. Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal, and there's this great show of force, and you'd think, wow, great. Israel's going to turn back to God. They're going to get things on the right path. And yet only a chapter later, things start going pretty pear-shaped. Jezebel is the queen at that time and finds out that Elijah has done this and so demands that Elijah be put to death. And so Elijah has to run for his life. And he's running and running and running and he gets to the point where he actually asks God to take his life. It's in verse 4 of chapter 19. He went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. 
He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. We meet this powerful man of God who is completely done, completely burnt out, completely broken. God gives him some food, instructs him to sleep. And then they have this encounter on the top of Mount Horeb. He entered a cave there and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets for the sword. I alone am left and they're looking for me to take my life. And then he said, go out and stand in the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And that's where the Lord was. We live in a world designed to ruthlessly eliminate silence. When when is the last time that you have sat in complete silence for more than 15 seconds? It is incredibly challenging and confronting to be silent. We live in a world where there's ambient noise, white noise, where we have apps to reduce silence. There's white noise apps so that you can just get it in the background and make sure that you are not silent. And I wonder whether what happens to many of us is that in the world of noise, the voice of the shepherd just gets drowned out. That there's so many different things going in and out of our minds that we we actually can't hear Jesus very well. I wonder what it would look like for us to practice a discipline of silence. To say, God, I want you to speak to me and I'm going to remove all my distractions. I've started doing this every so often, just just cultivating a, a, a discipline of silence and asking God, can you speak to me? Speak to me in your word, speak to me in prayer. And to be honest, I don't really like it. I don't, and I don't like it because it confronts me too much. It confronts me because in the busyness and the noisiness of my own life, I can easily ignore what my soul is saying. I don't, I don't think you're actually following the, the voice of the shepherd, Jimmy. I actually don't think this is the abundant life that Jesus, Jesus intended for you. I think God wants you closer than you are right now. But I just, I just plug my ears in and go, I'm not, not listening. Don't have to listen to that. I think silence confronts a relationship with God. I think too often we're like children, two-year-olds. If I can't see you, you can't see me, God. If I can't hear you, I can't hear you, God. I know that there's work that you need to do in my heart and my soul. But if I ramp up the noise, maybe I can just ignore you for a little bit. So when's the last time that you've been in complete silence? I know we can do it. Actually, when you you take a look all throughout the Bible, everyone did it. Jesus did it multiple times. In fact, there's literally a story where Jesus went to have silence and solitude and the disciples forget him. Because that's what happens in a noisy world. You just forget stuff. right? They literally forget Jesus, the leader of their crew, because they're so busy. And he's seeking silence. 
So ask yourself, does my schedule actually allow me to hear the voice of the Lord? Does my life look like someone who wants to hear from God? Or is it so filled with stuff that I get, I'm drowning out the voice of the shepherd? Because I think if we were being honest with ourselves, too many of us would say, that's exactly it. I'm here for the noise. I'm here for the consuming fire. I'm here for the great works. But if God requires silence, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Here's the third refueling station for the Christian. Sleep. When's the last time that you've ever heard a sermon on sleep? Never? Right? I'm guessing. Right? Some of you want to practice it right now, and that's okay. Right? But here's the reality. We spend 30% of our entire lives in sleep, and it's one of the most vital aspects of us having, making sure that we're living a productive, like encouraging, filled life, and yet we never talk about it. We talk more about the coffee used to simulate the experience of good sleep than the good sleep itself. Right? It's, it's, it's insane. And yet sleep is theological. It is profoundly theological. David Murray, the guy who wrote Reset, um, one of the books that's really encouraged and inspired this series, he says, if you show me your pattern of sleep, I will show you your worldview. I will show you what you think about God, what you think about others, what you think about everything. Why? Because our, our sleep, our, our abundance of sleep, a lack of sleep reveals what we think about God, whether we trust him or not. Can I let this project go? Can I put the phone down? Can I leave this thing in the hands of God? Well, probably not. I've got to get it done because otherwise things will fall apart. There's a lack of belief in the sovereignty of God. Right? It reveals our idols. I don't know about you, I love sport, but lots of sports are up late at night. And so it reveals what are the things that I'm going to participate in, focus on, instead of spending time with God that's going to leave me distracted and disengaged for the rest of the week. It also reveals our lack of care of others. Right? One John says, this is how you know that you're a Christian, if you love your brothers and sisters. But too often we stay up extra late because it doesn't really matter if we're a cow tomorrow doesn't really matter whether we're a jerk tomorrow. They can deal with that. God forgives me. Every year, the Tour de France hits at July. I love the Tour de France. It's like, it's, I was going to say it's like crack. It's, it's not like crack, but it's close. Second, second to crack. I, I love it. Here's the thing. Coverage starts at 10, at 10 p.m. Coverage finishes at 1.30 a.m. Three weeks. Right? And for years and years and years, the month of July, I've stayed up almost every single night. And I had this realization this year that I, I actually can't watch the Tour de France. I'm, I'm a bad husband when I stay up that late. I'm a bad leader when I stay up that late. I'm a bad friend when I stay up that late. And I'm a bad Christian. Missing out on those extra three hours of sleep every night makes me care for Sarah less. It makes me listen to my friends less. It makes me less engaged with the people I care about. And it makes me less inclined to hear the voice of God. Sleep matters. It matters physically, spiritually, and emotionally. It's one of the things that we just, we, 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 we just ignore. Right? A hundred years ago, people slept 11 hours a night, and we, on average, sleep seven. We've lost four hours over the last 100 years. Like, it's just insane. And you look at some of the, the research, we can get this yeah, quote from David Murray. Research shows that one week of sleeping fewer than six hours a night results in damaging changes to more than 700 genes, coronary narrowing, and brain tissue loss. I don't have enough brain tissue to lose more. 
Chronic sleep deprivation is associated with increased risk of infection, stroke, cancer, high blood pressure, heart disease and infertility. Sleep loss increases hunger, desire for more food and leads to obesity. Okay, great. Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? What about this word from Don Carson, a New Testament scholar? If you are amongst those who become nasty, cynical, or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to try to get the sleep that you need. We are whole, complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing that you can do in the universe is to get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. I'm not denying that there may be a place for praying all night. I'm merely insisting that in the normal course of things, spiritual discipline obligates you to get the sleep you need. That hits me. I have a moral obligation if I am nasty or cynical or full of doubt the following morning to get the sleep that I need. I can't watch the Tour de France. I can watch the highlights. I can watch the news. I cannot stay until 1.30am every night. John Piper who's a name that many of you will be familiar with. He's an American pastor. He's written a number of books. He's quoted every second or third week here. He's a guy that we respect and admire. He says this, I am emotionally less resilient when I sleep. In the last seven or eight years, my threshold for despondency is much lower. For me, adequate sleep is not a matter of staying healthy, but a matter of staying in ministry. It is irrational that my future should look bleaker when I get four or five hours sleep several nights in a row, but that is irrelevant. Those are the facts. And I must live within the limits of facts. I commend sufficient sleep to you for the sake of your proper assessment of God and his promises. Do Do you catch that? This is a guy who's been in ministry for 50 years and says the difference between him being in and out of ministry is whether he gets an extra two hours of sleep a night. The difference between him hearing and remembering the promises of God is getting hours of sleep a night. The difference between him hearing the voice of the shepherd and not is two hours of sleep a night. It matters, Christian, how you sleep. It just does. We cannot stay up all night doing whatever and, and expect to experience abundant life. Let me commend to you, sleep more. That is my Explicit instruction. Sleep more for the sake of your soul. The fourth and final refueling station, meditation. I've been doing a lot of reflection on um, just the things that have changed in the 29 years that I've been on earth. And one of the things I think that has changed the most is our technology and our relationship with it. Um, I remember the first time I got a phone. I was 16 years old. Um, you had to buy six Coke bottles and get in the caps, so six caps, and send it in with $30, and then you got this phone. What a cracker. It was a beast. Um, you could play soccer with it, like it did not break. We did play soccer with it. It didn't break, and it was great. But now we live in, like, I was 16, so 16 years until I got my first phone. Like, if you've got a smartphone with you, just here, do you want to just raise it up? Just get it out of your pockets, right? Sarah's already there, like you're taking notes on it, right? We've all got these smartphones now. There's really interesting um, research that's been done into smartphones and especially the life of teenagers. See, um, there's this article that was released 
from some research that someone had done, just called, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? It's got this... This is like a, it's a pretty confronting image, a pretty confronting um, heading. This is what it's getting at. The author of the article, Jean, uh, Jean Twenge, it's Canadian, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, she started noticing that at universities, when digital natives, those who have spent their entire lives online with a phone in hand, they cannot remember a time before Facebook or YouTube, when they hit university, anxiety and mental health problems rocketed, like skyrocketed. They said that mental health programs at universities were not able to cope with it. In fact, they, they were used to coping with things like homesickness, loneliness, maybe a bit of OCD or depression, Anxiety was very rare, and suddenly, anxiety rates had skyrocketed. So what's to blame? Actually, Twen says that we are on the brink of the greatest mental health crisis in history because of her research. So what's to blame? Our phones. The culprit is our humble phones. Let me get the next thing. It seemed like too easy an explanation for negative mental health outcome in teens, but it ended up being the only explanation that fits the timing. The only factor that dramatically increased right amongst the same time as teenage anxiety was the number of young people owning their own smartphone. And there's some charts. So we can go to the first chart. So 2007, the iPhone is released, and in about 2010 is when every teen starts having a, a smartphone for themselves. What happens? Hanging out with friends plummets. Connection plummets. Disconnection experientially, uh, exponentially increases. What about the next slide? Less likely to get enough sleep. 2010, again, there's a, there's a big marker, a big increase. It goes from 35, roughly, percent to 45% of teens now do not get enough sleep a night. As we said, we need sleep. And this is the one that hit me most. It makes me want to sell my phone. Can we get the next one? More likely to feel alone. 2010, everyone's got their own smartphone. And more likely to feel alone almost like triples. Like it's insane. And I'm not here to blame the smartphone. I'm not here to blame teenagers. In fact, we all just raise up our phones. We have our phones on us 24-7. They are having an effect on us whether we want it or not. They are changing us and shaping us and transforming us. They are making us addicted to distraction. And distraction is an enemy to the presence of God. It just is. We cannot meditate upon God. We cannot focus on God if we are continually distracted by, I don't know, uh, like Farmville. The average person picks up their phone 81,500 times a year, which roughly averages out to 4.3 times, uh, 4.3, once every 4.3 minutes, which means that by the time this service is finished, you'll have been tempted to pick up your phone 15 times. You're at church trying to get close to God, and this thing in your pocket is distracting you. It undermines our ability to focus on God, to chew on God, to think about his promises, to think about his grace. Meditation is one of the greatest allies the Christian faith has. It is not an easy religion. 
The things that we talk about are not simple. They require chewing, processing, just constantly thinking over and over and over. You think you've got grace and then you think about it more and I don't understand it. Distraction destroys us. Like Meditation is just this constant theme. Can we, can we get some Bible verses in Colossians? Um, I think chapter 3, that's right. If you've been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. What? Set your minds on what is above, not what is on the earth. Then the next one, this is in Hebrews 12, one of my favorites. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. is encouraging us to keep our eyes, keep our minds on Jesus. And I think where it's most clear in Philippians chapter 4, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's any praise, dwell on these things. What do we think we're doing on our phones? Is it that? Right? What's... Just let me just ask an honest question. And you can be honest here. Right? We've got confession in a bit. right? There'll be absolution. You're fine. What's the first thing you picked up this morning? Was it your phone? Right? It's programmed itself into our lives to be the first thing that we pick up and the last thing we lay down. The first thing that gets into our brains is the brokenness of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Google and all the kind of stuff that we're researching every single day. It is killing us. It, it just is. I'm not against phones. I have my own smartphone. But I wonder what it means when every single day we meditate on the meaningless. Every single day we're not, we're not meditating. Can we get that Philippians passage back up, Jose? We're not, we're not meditating on what is honorable or pure or lovely or commendable. We're, we're meditating on what's broken. We're meditating on what's What's insecure. We're, medit- we're meditating on, on what's not working. It shapes us. It drains us. It disconnects us from the refueling station of med- mediate, uh, meditation. Like this ability to chew on, to process the things of God. So what would it look like for you to meditate on the things of God? What would it look like to put down the phone and disconnect from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the stuff that doesn't really matter and just spend time with God? Right? Facebook is useless. Twitter and Instagram are useless. They just are. I love them, right? but they're useless. They bring nothing to my life. Right? And yet I know that the presence of God brings so much. So why am I trading something that means so much for something that means so little? I'm addicted to these little baubles that shine and catch my attention and what I need is to keep my eyes on Jesus. So let me end here. I remember that Jono gave this analogy once that I think is, is profound. He was catching up with someone and the person was like, I'm feeling really disconnected from God. I'm feeling really tired. I'm feeling broken. I'm feeling burnt out. And so, like, okay, like that, that happens. Like, we will go through these, these dark nights of the soul, through these desert seasons where we feel distant from God. He said, okay, so have you been reading your Bible? Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's tricky at the moment. You know, I'm just saying at the time. Okay, so you've been praying. 
Okay? No, no. Uh, occasionally, maybe once a week. Okay? So you've been meeting with fellow Christians. Uh, you know, my life is just so busy. Okay? So uh, have you been getting to church? Uh, yeah, like once a month. You know, it's pretty good. Excellent attendance. Um, okay, so you're spending time with God. Not really. And Jonah just says, what, what do you expect to happen? Right? God has laid his word out for you to feast on. He's given you his ear to speak to. He's given you brothers and sisters to encourage you. You're not taking them. God has laid a feast down for you to enjoy, and you're sitting at the table complaining of being starving. Christian, we live in a busy world. We live in a culture of burnout and God has laid a feast down for us to enjoy his presence, to get us to slow down and enjoy abundant life. And I feel like the thing that God is saying to us, will you pick up the fork and eat? Right? Spirit empowered, pick up the fork and eat. God has so much for us and we complain of having so little. I think that when Jesus says, I've come so that they may have life and life to the full, he means it but it does not mean something disconnected to the presence of God. God will not give you abundant life connected to something else. It has to be connected to him. He is the shepherd. He is the door. Eternal life comes through him. Abundant life comes through him alone. So let's think, right? We're going to have soup in a little bit, right? Ask yourself. Ask each other. Have conversations about it. Am I accessing these refueling stations? Am I accessing the presence of God? Am I having intimacy with God? Or are there things keeping me from Him? Is noise keeping me from Him? Am I ignoring the means of grace that He's given me? Have I, am I not sleeping enough? Am I forgetting the promise of God because I'm staying up all night watching the Tour de France? Am I meditating on things that are meaningless and mediocre instead of on the mighty and awesome God of all creation? I'm going to pray for us. We've gone a little over time. That's okay. Can I just encourage you? We're going to have some prayer to the side. If you're feeling tired and you want intimacy with God, come and pray with us. If you're you're like Elijah and just said, I'm done. I'm cooked. I'm burnt out. I'm broken. I need something to change. Come and pray with us. Because we believe that when Jesus says, I've come so that you may have life and life to the full, he really, really means it. Let me pray for us, and we'll start singing. God, I just want to thank you for your word this morning. I want to thank you that you are good, that you have life, not just life that we access when we die, but life that we can access here and now. Intimacy with you, union with God, following the voice of the shepherd. God, I pray that you would reveal to us what it is in our hearts that dampen the voice of the shepherd, that dampen his call to us. What are the things that get in the way of being intimate with Jesus, getting close to Jesus? Because God, I pray that you would transform us. Transform us into a people that when others look at us, they go, they have abundant life. I want that. Tell me about that. In a culture of burnout, allow us to live with grace. We pray this in his precious and mighty name. Amen.